0: You're listening to Behind the Red Shield, a podcast produced by the Salvation Army of Memphis and the Mid-South. I'm your host, Camille Conner. The purpose of this podcast is to go behind the scenes and hear from the people doing the daily work to achieve the Salvation Army's mission, which is to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. In this episode I sat down with Elizabeth Duncan, a current advisory board member and former development director for the Salvation Army of Memphis. We took a walk down memory lane and talked about the construction of the Purdue Center of Hope, a residential shelter which now serves up to 130 women and children in Memphis. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Red Shield. Today, I am joined by Elizabeth Duncan. Elizabeth is currently on our advisory board and also has a long history with the Salvation Army. She was previously the development director of the Salvation Army in Memphis. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you for inviting me, Camille. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of, uh, of of this.
0: Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to talking to you because like I mentioned just before we started uh, recording, you kind of have a lot of background info into what the Salvation Army has become today in Memphis. Um, a lot of the fundraising events that we've held over the last few years have helped women and children residing at the Purdue Center of Hope, uh, which is a residential shelter in Memphis um, on Jackson. And uh, so you were here even before this uh, shelter was built on Jackson Avenue. And so I kind of want to hit rewind. And talk about, you know, your journey to connecting with the Salvation Army of Memphis and how you became a staff member and then how you were part of the journey to build uh, the Producer of Hope. So if we can hit rewind and talk about just what what was your first connection with the Salvation Army?
1: Uh, You know, it's interesting. I got a phone call from a friend back in, um, I guess, mid-1997. And he actually worked for the Salvation Army and said that he was leaving his job as development director and going to work for a private firm that raised helped not-for-profits raise money and wanted to know if I would be interested in applying for the job. Um, I got to tell you, I was a little shocked. I had Uh, gotten involved in the not-for-profit world when we moved back to Memphis in 1989, so I certainly was aware of the Salvation Army and a lot of other really fun not-for-profit organizations here in Memphis, but I had never, um, I had always been a volunteer um, and then then a part-time staff member, but never on a development staff, and I remember thinking, raise money. Heavens, I don't know how to do that. Um, So I don't know whether I can do that job or not. I I called my uh, minister and said, asked for a meeting and said, I've been asked to apply for a job and I'm not sure that I'm equipped to do that job. And so we talked for a minute and he said, "Um, Elizabeth, do you feel like God is calling you to do this job? And And I said, yes, I do. He said, then quit worrying because if God has called you to do this job, he's already equipped you to do it. So with that, I just uh, finished filling out the application and the rest, so they say is history that I joined the army in November of 1997. The property, um, we were in the process of raising money to build the Purdue Center of Hope. I don't know, uh, Camille, if you know this, but our shelter, which housed both men and women, had previously be, been located in what is now left field of AutoZone Park. And that property, they needed the property to build AutoZone Park and contacted the Salvation Army and the property was sold. So for a while, we were had to, to take our residents who had numbered in the big shelter uh, over right about a hundred a night. And we bought a piece of property on Jackson Avenue, right across the street from where you're located, Camille. um, I think that's now... um and empty, several empty lots over there, but there was an old boarding house that had two houses that were connected and then a third house that could be used for meetings. And we bought that property and opened a temporary shelter until we could raise the funds and build the Purdue Center of Hope. So we went from being able to house about 100 men, women, and children uh, to housing about 35 a night. So for the period of time while we were raising the money and building, our services decreased significantly. But here's the great thing about the Army, people understood what we were doing and they believed in what we were doing and our funding was not cut. I, I will always be grateful to United Way because at that time they were one of our largest funders and they could have easily said, you've cut your services by two thirds and we're gonna cut your butt, our, our allocation to you. And they did not, they stood right with us for those three years until we got the Purdue Center open and they were not the only one. Um, but I just think that tells you a little bit about the, the generosity of Memphians and of organizations and about the importance of the Salvation Army's work in Memphis, people believed in us then they believed in us in 1900 when the army came to Memphis and they still believe in us now. And, um, I think that's the reason there are so many people that want to be involved with the army. Yeah. So there we came to, I came to the army and with the task of raising $7 million to build the Purdue center of hope, our may, our lead gift at that time was given by murdy Buckman of Buckman labs. And, um, she, she was approached about uh, building the building and perhaps naming it the Buckman Center of Hope. And her response was, uh, oh, there's so many buildings named Buckman. Let's not name another building after my family. Let's, um, I'll give you a million dollars as a lead gift and let's challenge our women's auxiliary to raise, to match my million. And then let's name it after Bram and Gertrude Perdue. The Purdues were longtime Salvation Army officers, and Gertrude and Mertie B- Buckman were best of friends. Um, the Purdues were so well loved; they had been area commanders in Memphis for a number of years, and then they retired. and Bram went to work at juvenile court, and Gertrude was involved in many things. Um, And then they were asked to come back into the army as officers and serve another few years. And and they did so with just such grace and dignity and were so well loved. Um, You need to know that up until the Purdue Center was built, there had never, to my knowledge, been a Salvation Army facility in the Southern Territory that had been named after an officer. They are most likely named after prominent people in town or businesses or whoever gives the lead gift, they get to put their name on the building. And I, I love that Mrs. Buckman just said, no, this doesn't need to be about me. It needs to be about the produce who loved Memphis and loved the Salvation Army. So that's how we got the Produce Center of Hope. The wonderful story is when uh, Mrs. Buckman went to a luncheon at the Women's Auxiliary, and she was to announce her million dollar gift and then to challenge the ladies of the auxiliary she stood up and talked about the army and how much she loved it and she forgot to mention that she was going to give a million and and (laughs) then challenge them to do it so she was headed back to her seat and they had to call her back to the podium to remind her of what she was supposed to do. it was um, She was such an unassuming lady and, and loved Gertrude produced so much. And it was just, it, that was a really precious moment for me. Uh, and one of the first uh, public uh, Salvation Army events that I got to attend. So she did announce it to the auxiliary and said, now I need you all to get busy and match my million and let's get this building built. And um, the auxiliary did more than match her million dollar gift. They raised. I, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact figure. If I remember correctly, it was about 1.4 million dollars that they raised to match Mrs. Buckman's gift. So I think that uh, shows you the power of uh, women. Mm-hmm. Uh, our aux- auxiliary at the time was very, very strong and had wonderful leadership, and they believed so much in in building this new building mm-hmm. um, for the women and children who were going to move in. So. That's that's kind of how we got the name. We finished out the campaign, started the building. Um, At that point, we had um, planned to house men in the Purdue Center of Hope. The the women's shelters were going to be upstairs, and the men's shelter was to be downstairs. Uh, You know the building, Camille, so you know there's a separate entrance um, on the the, uh, east side of the building downstairs. That was because they didn't want the men and the women coming in the same entrance. They wanted them to be separated. As we were building that building, uh, the city came to us and said, there is no shelter in Memphis, Tennessee for women unaccompanied by children, and there is a great need. Would you consider... um, Changing from um, uh, from housing men to housing single women in in your lodge, and so we had to do a little bit of uh, rigging. Not we, I didn't. Although I got to, I got to watch it. Uh, the contractors they had to do a little bit of rigging in the bathroom, but other than that, uh, it simply uh, we we met with the board and with the officers, and and they said certainly if that's the greatest need, then we want to meet the need in the in the. In the community, so that's how um, we ended up with the uh, AutoZone uh, Single Women's Lodge, which uh, I guess is still called the Zone for yeah. years and years. That's that's what it was called to house at that time twenty unac- uh, women unaccompanied by children, and um, just have uh, such wonderful programs have happened under uh, Iris Wade's leadership in in that Single Women's Lodge. So. Um, that was really a godsend for us that we got to serve a need that um, up until that point was an unmet need. We uh, we bought the building, the, the land where the Purdue Center is located from um, a hospital that had been a a privately owned hospital for years and years, and it was Gartley Ramsey Hospital. Uh, it was known as a, a place where people could go and rest. Um, it was had the reputation that if you um, had a proclivity toward alcohol and needed a place to dry out, Gartley Ramsey was the place to go. It was, you know, good meals, and and they took very good care of you if you're mental health was not in top-notch shape, then the wealthy could come to Gartley Ramsey and um, find a place of rest. Um, It was, had been, um, the hospital closed eventually and was bought by um, a church, and so we negotiated the sale of that property. We purchased that property um, from the church, and then we uh, purchase some individual house back behind the building because we need room for a, a play, a play area and for a parking lot behind the building. So that was kind of fun. I, I got to be a part of that negotiating contract with church and, and working with the city to, uh, we were buying a couple of pieces that were, had been uh, taken over for lack of tax payment. And so uh, I got to help with that through a, uh, A city councilman who uh, happened to be a very big supporter of the Salvation Army so uh, that was kind of a neat process for me but all the land came together and we raised all the money that we needed and construction began and that facility was opened in um, the year 2000 which was the hundredth year of service um, for the Salvation Army in Memphis Tennessee. Uh, In that building we opened the facility with three Shelters, the Single Women's Lodge, which which I mentioned, and um, two shelters upstairs. One um, a, a family shelter for a short term uh, shelter for women and their children. And then on the other side upstairs, we opened a program. It it had never been done in Memphis, and um, there was a, a similar program at the Salvation Army in Fort Worth, and. So we had talked briefly about what we were going to, how that program might work in Memphis. And basically what we looked at, uh, a number of us sat down and said, if we believe that alcoholism and drug addiction is a family disease, then treating the person who is addicted is very important. Mm -hmm. But if you don't treat the whole family, particularly the children, Mm -hmm. they are horribly impacted by the disease of uh, the disease of of addiction so what is it we can do uh, to take care of that and and we developed a program that is now known as renewal place we it's uh, we spent a lot of time going back and forth to Nashville and part of that program is um, designed around the program in Nashville that has, had had at that point only been open a couple of years but was seeing tremendous success. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we opened Renewal Place for 20 families, I believe um, in the beginning. And it was simply number one, you had to be addicted and admit to it and admit that you wanted to, to get free of alcohols or dr- alcohol and or drugs, and that you had custody of your children. Uh, and would be willing to bring them to you. What, what made Renewal Place so unique and still is so unique is that this program was designed for as a two-year program. Mm-hmm. The idea was um, you can't you could go into a, um, a facility to get treatment for drug and alcohol abuse it, if your insurance would pay for it and you would go in for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you were declared um, clean and sober and ready to go back out into the world. And what those who professionals knew was uh, some drugs, you can't even get out of your body in 30 days. And certainly in 30 days, you're not ready to, to leave, lead a completely uh, clean and sober life. And so um, the program was developed as a two-year program. And the idea was it takes time. It takes time, it takes love, it takes a lot of family support, a lot of um, clinical support. And so Sharon Cash was hired to run that program. And um, I I don't need to say more about Sharon Cash, except (laughs) that she's the most amazing woman I have ever met in my life, who understands addiction and who knew how to help women and their children get sober. that program is really, uh, to me, the lifeblood of the Salvation Army. It is taking people who are down and out and have lost everything and help them rebuild their lives to, pro- to become uh, productive members of society. And um, I met Stacy Glover. I came to work one morning and she was out on the back patio and um, just gorgeous, just so um, professional looking and very pregnant. Uh, but I made a mental note that she must be a new employee. And so I walked on in, got my coffee, went to my office and, and later um, said something to somebody because I didn't see her in the administrative wing. And, and I said, I met, I saw this lady today, I'd like to meet her and described her. And, and the comment was, oh yes, yeah, she's entering renewal place. Um, There she was pregnant and she had lost custody of her children she had lost everything she had. And, and there she was uh, pregnant and homeless and addicted, and coming to the Salvation Army for help. She stayed there her baby was born free of drugs. Stacy stayed a little over two years got out got a job. and. Um, several years later, I had an opening in my department for an administrative assistant and Sharon Cash called me and asked if, um, said that Stacy was interested in that job and would I be willing to interview her? Uh, my answer, of course, was yes. Send her in and, and let me talk about it. Let me talk to her about it. And Stacy's comment was, um, I may not know I may not have the same skills that some of the other people have who are applying for this job, but nobody else knows the army better than I do. Uh, And if you'll hire me, I'll do, I'll do a good job for you. Um, So of course, I mean, I'm crying. And of course I said, yes, come, can you start tomorrow? And, um, and then I've watched her grow while I was there and she was on the development staff and uh, really was such a, it helped bring cohesion to, to the whole uh, administrative staff and then watched her grow, go back to school and get her degree and now look at her now, a yeah, product that of that program. She's just she's one of the many miracles mm-hmm. that took place in the Purdue Center.
0: Yeah, she's doing a great so, job um, as a director of our Renewal Place program right now. So it's great
1: that yeah. she's still here with us. And I can't think of anybody um, better to do that job. She was well-trained by Sharon Cash. Absolutely. So um, again, that's there's so many stories that, that have come out of that building of people who've just come in down and out and, and just without hope. And, and yet um, through God's grace and mercy, you see them emerge through the other side with a light in their eyes and hope in their hearts, um, and it's pretty amazing. It's I, I was so blessed to be able to, to do that job for, for 16 years. Uh, mm-hmm. It was not always easy uh, as um, it, it's an expensive place to run, uh, to house... Uh, um, over 100 120 i think was the capacity at the time when you put 120 people in a in a building every night that need shelter and they need meals and they need case management and they need lots of other services mm-hmm. it uh, it was not cheap yeah. but you know the community always came the community always came forward and recognized the good work that the Salvation Army was doing nationwide and certainly the good work we were doing in Memphis. So um, that's that's pretty much my story with the Purdue Center. And then um, Joan Croc left her amazing gift to the Salvation Army uh, when Ray Crock died he left his estate to joan crock his wife and when she died she left um, a gift of 1.5 billion Mm dollars to the salvation army she had uh, built a crock center in san diego which was her uh, hometown and um she was so proud of that and wanted to replicate those sinners. Mm-hmm. And so after she died, she left this huge gift. At the time, it was the largest single gift that had ever been given to a not-for-profit by a single individual. Mm-hmm. Of course, that that has long been uh, that record has long been broken. But at the time, one point five billion dollars mm-hmm. to a charity was huge. So um, we we had a, a wonderful, Um, Salvation Army officer in town um, at the time. And he and his wife said, I think we should go for it. Mm -hmm. So they called a a wonderful group of uh, our supporters, our advisory board, and said, um, can we do this? Can Memphis do this? And we decided that we could. And so we embarked on a uh, $25 million campaign. Mrs. Buckman, Mrs. Uh, Crocs, Will said that she would give equal amounts. So for us, we were going to do a $25 million building. So she gave $50 million to, or she didn't, but the trust did, uh, $50 million to Memphis, 25 to build a building. And 25 to endow that building so that we would not have to raise money for the croc center because we didn't want to take away from raising money from the traditional salvation army housing and feeding programs it had been determined um, in san diego that a dollar for dollar match was not enough for operating costs so we were required uh, in order to claim her money Uh, 25 we got 25 for the building and then 25 for an endowment and we had to raise 25 million dollars locally to match the endowment so we ended up with a a 25 to 30 million dollar building and a 50 million dollar endowment which uh, keeps the croc center uh, running along with um, uh, memberships and other things that they have there but that was um, that was another exciting time to to raise the money, uh, again, we had so much fantastic help, just like we did raising the uh, money for the Produce Center with the Kimmons Wilson family chairing the Purdue Center campaign. And then Scott and Meg Crosby came in and chaired the Croc Center campaign. And, you know, when you have, um, committed people who are well yeah. known in the community mm-hmm. um it's it's and and an organization that has a stellar reputation mm-hmm. uh, the money just comes god god makes it possible for the money to come to to build the building
0: being mom a single mom is tough being homeless is that's the worst thing trauma for uh, mom and children but it being here in this environment it's it's changed us i'm very thankful for salvation army because it was actually really good um, to know that my children and i have a bed to sleep on it's really helped me to gain a little bit more power to know that even as a single mom i can still make it out here in this world Obviously, you have a heart for the Salvation Army, but what led you to continue this relationship with the organization as an advisory board member?
1: Um, You know, it's real funny. Uh, Nancy Crosby, who was uh, one of the first people I met when I joined the Army, she, I believe, may have been board chair or perhaps chair of the auxiliary when I came to the Army. And she was, she and her husband were so involved in the Army. And She said to me one time, you know, Elizabeth, when the army gets in your blood, it's just there and you don't ever get it out. (laughs) And I've thought about that so often because after serving 16 years as a staff member, um, I I really thought that was probably the end of it. And then someone asked me to serve on an ad hoc committee for the Salvation Army. I think what they really needed was an extra body. Mm -hmm. and somebody who had a little bit of knowledge about the history. And so Mm -hmm. they thought about me and called me and asked me if I would serve on this committee. And I really enjoyed it. And then the next year, uh, I was asked to serve on the board. And so um, it's been, I've really enjoyed doing the opposite, Mm -hmm. being a volunteer, um, and seeing the Army as through different lens Mm -hmm. as a volunteer as a poet as opposed to to a staff member but um i'm on i think i have two more years on my uh, term as a board member Mm so i will stay on until my term runs out and then i will rotate off the board as Mm -hmm. is mandated by the advisory board book but um we have great volunteers Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a lot of um opportunities. Uh, One of the things we're working on right now with the board, uh, Susan Madden is chairing this initiative um, to have all volunteer bell ringers. Um, Most people may not know that a lot of the people who ring the bell for the Salvation Army are paid workers. Mm -hmm. And the statistics from from many years ago, including uh, recently, show that when there's a volunteer ringing the bell, there's a lot more money put into the kettle than when there is a paid worker. Mm-hmm. And so there's really a push this year. Uh, John Elkington is president of the board and with Susan Mann's help, they're really working hard on um, getting volunteers, uh, specifically board members, to each take a day of ringing or to um, or to. Um, if they don't do it themselves, then to recruit enough volunteers. So I love that idea. Uh, In our Sunday school class, several years ago, I um, took it to the class and said, um, you know, this is something that I feel called to bring to our class. Is there anybody here who's interested? You don't have to tell me to my face today. I'm going to just uh, write on a piece of paper, yes or no, and pass it around to me because I didn't want anybody to feel like that because my husband was the Sunday school teacher, they had to sign up (laughs) Troy the bell. And I was absolutely astounded that we had such a good response. So we rang that first year and um, everybody said, oh, our shift wasn't long enough. I I, I put them in 30 minute shifts because we are all um, considered part of the elderly generation. And I thought uh, standing for more than 30 minutes might be hard for some of us. Um, and they all came back and said, 30 minutes is not long enough. Next year, let us at least do an hour. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess then the last two years after that, we've taken a day. And I, I believe this year we're going to be able to take two days. Um, and I've gotten uh, recruited another uh, Sunday school class at our church who has said, yes, we used to do this a long time ago and something happened and we quit and we want to come back and do it. So Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that. It's simply a way of, you ask the question, will you be willing to do it? And, uh, you know, most people say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they say no, then that's okay too. But I love it when people say, are given an opportunity and step Mm -hmm. forward. So I think we're going to have a great Christmas.
0: Yeah, that kind of leads me into my next question. The last question we probably have time for, but I mean, you have given us just such a uh, deep understanding of kind of the history of, you know, the Purdue Center, the Croc Center, and, you know, the Salvation Army at the turn of the 21st century. But um, what is your hope for the future of the Salvation Army and what is something you want people in our community to understand about the Salvation Army that they may not understand right now?
1: Well, I, I think uh, first and foremost, I hope most people know that this is a Christ-centered Organization that our mission is such, it makes no bones about who we are and what we do, and that we say, that we serve God's people in need without discrimination. I'm not quoting the the mission statement, but um, that that it is very much Christ centered. It always has been with William Booth uh, when he formed this organization back in 1865, and and as it came to the to the United States in the early 19 or late 1880s, I guess. Um, and I, I think people need to know that there is accountability. That we we don't just do the work willy-nilly. We do it because um, because we feel called. Uh, you see, you see, Camille. I still say we. And I've been retired for ten <laughs> see, years, uh-huh. but it's that old mm-hmm. uh, adage. You know, the army gets in your blood and doesn't leave. Um, so my hope is that the army never loses its focus mm-hmm. and that it continues to deliver. Um, fantastic programs and services in a godly and loving way so that people can reach the potential and be the people that God has called them to be and in order to do that you have to people have people who are willing to give money to support and you have to have people who are willing to get in with their hands and feet and do the work Mm -hmm. Um, and I can assure you um, that whatever you do Uh, you're going to get more out of it than you have ever given. That certainly has been true for me.
0: Yeah. And like we always say, it it takes an army to keep this going and and love is an action verb. So we really appreciate any time that the community can come together, whether it's through volunteerism or fundraising to help continue uh, moving our mission forward. But I am just so glad that I got to talk with you today and just kind of pick your brain about some of the history that people may not know about. Um, People might be passing this building all the time on on Jackson Avenue or passing the Crock and just not understand uh, the work that went into making it a reality. So thank you for joining me and thank you as well for the work that you've done here in Memphis
1: with the Salvation Army. Thank you, Camille, it's been a pleasure.
0: That wraps up this week's episode of Behind the Red Shield. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Memphis and the Mid-South, you can head to our website at salvationarmymemphis.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Salvation Army Memphis. Thanks for listening.